I am Planton on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Bill Stenson joins me again. The writer and educator has just published a new collection, Half-Brothers and Other Stories. It contains four short stories and a novella. These are stories set in the Cowichan Valley where he joins me from today. I'll ask him about this part of British Columbia and uh, what island life means to him. I'll ask him about reading and its part in writing and more. Bill Stenson won the Great BC Novel Contest with his novel Ordinary Strangers. He first appeared on this program when it was published in 2018. His work has been published in various publications. He was a teacher of English and creative writing in high schools, the Victoria School of Writing and the University of Victoria. The website for more is at BillStenson.com. This new book is from Mother Tongue Publishing. Please welcome back to the Plot Online program, Bill Stenson. Mr. Stenson, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I enjoyed uh, reading uh, this book because the the, the, um, the characters are um, they're fascinating because I, I don't I, I, I want to know more even as I, I finish reading the stories um, that they're in um, the the um, the feelings that they have are, are, are vivid they're visceral as are the places in which they find themselves um, when it comes to, to, to writing what comes first for you the character or the setting. Uh, well, for me, the setting's important, but uh, I think for me, a lot of the stories that I end up writing, whether they're short stories or novellas or novels, a lot of them are anchored in the Cowichan Valley because this is more or less where I grew up. Mm-hmm. But some stories or novels that I've written are from away, so therefore I have to do a lot of research and have a feel for you know where that story is going to take place, for example, Fernie, B.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to know the the area well, but most of my stories, uh, the feeling that I have when I write them is that they're set in the Cowichan Valley, but I don't know if, if it starts with character. Sometimes it starts with character, I suppose, yeah. but I think for me, most often it starts with a, an overwhelming feeling of a almost like a, a sense of something in the air and a story seems to come wavering out of it and then I try to identify what kind of characters would live inside that story and that's where they, they get that's where they evolve is in the idea itself there's one story where the really characters find themselves um, at a white spot after an event right and uh, I found that amusing in that, um, because I grew up in Vancouver, right. uh, most of us that grew up in British Columbia, yeah. uh, wherever there are white spots, um, recognize uh, why we go there and, and um, uh, you know, what, what it's like inside and, and, and sort of, it, it got me nostalgic for a minute, right. even though I was at a white spot probably a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, I remember once my brother when he lived in Port Coquitlam, he had some visitors from uh, Alberta come, uh-huh. and he, they stayed overnight. And he asked them, "So, while you're here, w- name some things that you would like to do." And the first thing they said is they wanted to go to the White Spot restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's um, um, and it, it reminded me so much. I mean, they, they had just—I I guess it was the story where. Um, uh, they just finished the. Uh, they just gone to. A, a, well, one character had just finished um, participating in a boxing match. Right. 
and um, yeah, we all know that feeling. You, you, you're you've just accomplished something in the day or in the evening. Yeah. And um, that's the the the, um, the place to go, even if you're not dressed uh, well enough to get into a restaurant, right? Exactly. Yeah, which he wasn't at mm-hmm. the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, you dedicate the book to Jim Anderson. Who's he? Uh, he's my my brother-in-law, and um, he was. He, he was from Alberta, originally in Calgary, and he was a plumber and a pipe fitter all his life. He could do anything, build boats, build houses. He was just a, a master at all crafts, really. And he told me the story when he, when he first married my sister that the only book he'd ever read in his life was the book Snow Goose, and he had to read it in grade 10 or something to get through that year. That's the only book he remembered ever reading from beginning to end. Uh-huh. And so when I started publishing um, my books, he read every one of my books, every one, every word, and he discussed it with me after. And I always, you know, he's passed now, unfortunately, but, um, you know, when I, when I thought about it, I thought I, I, I just wanted to acknowledge him somehow because here's a man who didn't read, but he somehow... I guess because he had some level of respect for me, read all of my books thoroughly. He bought them and sent them to his brothers. It was really, you know, kind of a, a connection that I had with him on that basis. That's that's lovely. Um, the um, the stories in the book are, are um, they're often quite moving um, because they, they evoke, um, as you said a moment ago, you, there's a feeling in the air that you're trying to capture. Right. Um, when you're writing, um, I was reading one story the other night, and, and um, I was enjoying it a great deal. I was wondering, do you have fun while you're writing? I, I do, really. Like, um, I always, you know, when I'm teaching students writing, the first, one of the first things I say to them is, if you're, if you're here and you're writing because, and you enjoy it, you'll probably write forever if it's a tedious task and you have to force yourself to do it, it's probably not for you. Like, it, it should be offering almost no resistance to get in there and muck around with words and try to create a story. So, for me, uh, I look forward to the idea of a story. Sometimes I'll think about it for a day. Sometimes I'll think about it for five minutes. But when I start, I'm, I'm on a journey, and the journey could last an hour or two, a couple of weeks, or two years, I don't know. But the fact that I'm involved in the process is a complete delight for me and absolutely nothing to do with treachery or work. Yeah, I read somewhere that you you write every day. Yeah, I do Uh, do something every day with my writing, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it might just be rereading something, editing something, formulating some ideas. Uh, plugging away at a longer piece that I'm working on, but I do something every day. I remember once at, at university there was uh, a professor called W.D. Valgertson, and he said something I thought was interesting. He said, "If you if you want to be a writer, one thing you have, one of the things you have to realize is you have to write." Mm-hmm. He said, "You can't get up and think, well." I don't know. I don't really feel like writing today. He said, just like a brain surgeon can't come get up in the morning and say, ah, I don't think I'll go in today. I don't feel yeah. like operating on brains, you yeah, know? Yeah. 
if you're going to if you're going to take it on, you need to take it on. But if you're taking it on out of out of a, a sense of obligation, then I don't think that's a healthy approach. It's got to be something that you absolutely desire to do. And if I have to go a day or two because of holidays or family affairs or whatever, and I don't get to write, then it's much like uh, runners. I've talked to runners that they don't run yeah. two days in a row and their endorphins don't get humming it through their body, that they feel like almost like a drug addict, like they have to get back to it. And that's the way it is for me with writing. So, so it, it is work, though, in some aspects of it. Is oh, it, it is. Yeah. It's a lot of, yes, it's a lot of, it's a challenge. It's a lot of uh, thinking, but it's delightful thinking. It's yeah. a lot of, you know, comparing, you know, what you initially thought with what you believe is the reality. Like, like every, to me, every, every literary story that I've ever written represents a reality. And it's not unlike, I, I've often heard people say, oh, I really liked that story, I really mm -hmm. like that movie, and I'll say, well, why, why is that? And they say, oh, because it, it was based on a true story. Well, for me, every, every piece of fiction is based on a thousand stories melded together, and you can be sure that somewhere in the world there are probably 10,000 people that have lived that experience mm -hmm. that you've captured in that story. Yeah. Is there any part of it, though, that you don't enjoy? Well, to be honest, if, yes, I guess there is. I don't really like um, the commercial side of it. I love creating. I love editing. I uh -huh. love when I'm very fortunate enough to have a, a, a publisher accept my work, and I enjoy working with their editors and you know streamlining it and perfecting it as best I can. But after that, I don't like the book selling part. I don't. I mean, I don't mind doing readings. Uh -huh. I you know I'll do those for sure, but. I guess my ideal writer would be J.D. Salinger, who became famous and was a complete recluse and lived on a farm in New York and never even gave interviews. You know, he just uh, just did what he wanted to do and forgot about the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. What um, can you describe for us, the the, the layperson, the reader who who doesn't write, say, um, what it's like when when the writing is good, when when you, when you're struck with these moments of inspiration and in, in, in you you're at your desk. And you, you seemingly can write endlessly because everything seems to be working for you. Right. Well, there are. You're right. There are times when the writing flows, and that seems quite delightful because it feels like progress. You know, like it seems easy for maybe a page or two, and then you may have to stop and reconsider something because you hit a crossroads. Mm -hmm. What is the character going to do next? So, uh, even those perplexing times that are pauses in the writing process are you have to understand are part of it. So for me, it doesn't really matter whether I'm sitting there thinking about the next line or how I should really approach what he's going to say and how he's going to say it, or whether I'm madly writing my third paragraph in two minutes. It, do it doesn't matter to me. The, the process is all vital. It's all important. And I, I try not to differentiate between the two. Mm, that's, that's a wonderful way of looking at life as well. Yeah, it is really like you know, like no matter what kind of job you have, no matter what you do, if you can't pull an hour out of every day to do something for yourself that you enjoy, then you need to to give your life some revision. I think. Indeed, indeed. Um, uh, one of the things I've been doing during COVID, because I haven't gone anywhere really, 
right. um, is, um, and not that I'm thinking of moving either. It's just that, you know, there's nothing to do when, when I say I'm at work and, and, you know, I've got a computer in front of me. I end up looking at real estate listings. And um, the, the, um, whenever I'd look at a place that's on Vancouver Island, one of the, right. it, regardless of where it is in the island, whether it's in Sydney or, or wherever where you live in the Cowichan Valley, they're always talking, it's a marketing line, I'm assuming. Uh, they're talking about island living. Right. Um, you've lived most of your life, I guess, in and around Vancouver Island. Um, does it feel like island living? I, one would assume that, because I'm from Vancouver, that um, it's isolating. I, I, for you, it, it isn't, is it? Yeah, well, I, I think the, the term island living uh, perhaps deserves a couple of definitions. Uh, uh, if you live on Vancouver Island, I go off Vancouver Island probably uh, on average of once a year. Uh -huh. So for me, it's almost like fun to catch the ferry mm -hmm. and you know make a journey. Like this year, we did go to Penticton for a week. So uh, to do something like that on this island is fine. Um, I myself would have a difficult time. My brother lived on Pender Island for a long time, and oh, yeah. those smaller islands personally don't appeal to me, but they, they do appeal to some people. I, I talked to a, a writer about a year ago, and he, he lived on Pender Island for, oh, seven or eight years, and he, and he said that he uh, met a man who lived on Pender Island, and he hadn't been off the island for 14 years. Mm. And now that seems... Yeah. Odd from what I would desire, but in an actual fact, he's the ideal candidate to live on Pender Island. Yeah. Just like if you live on Vancouver Island and you, but you work, and some people do this. They let's say live in Nanaimo or Victoria, and they work in Vancouver. Yeah. That, to me, is ludicrous. Yeah, yeah. But if you live on Vancouver Island or any of the other small islands, the notion of island living it, it probably could be best summed up in a slower pace of life. But mm. the thing is. There are many small, cozy, ideal little small communities all throughout British Columbia that offer much the same thing. The only difference is here we have the ocean. Yeah, yeah. And, and we were talking just before we started about um, uh, why well, I asked you what, what it's like this time of year. We're talking just at the beginning of October here. Um, right. The leaves have, are, are turning here in Vancouver. I'm assuming they're doing the same there. They're starting to. It's a little late this year. It hasn't been very cold. Mm. Well, that, that sounds appealing to me right there. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's beautiful here. We have uh, lakes and rivers and ocean, and, and I, like I said, I grew up here. But I did, you know, I did live uh, for a year when I was very young on Thetis Island, so yeah. back in the days when they didn't even have a ferry. So, <laughs> But when you're a little kid, when you're six years old, living on Thetis Island, was, it would be like living on Vancouver Island for me. You yeah. know, I never got off, but I never wanted to get off, you know. What I enjoyed about this collection, as well as your previous novel, is that it's writing of BC. What what draws you to write about British Columbia as you do? Well, uh, you know, I I have written a novel that's not yet published. That is set in Montreal. It's about uh -huh. the great Antonio, and and uh, you know, my wife and I we did a trip to Montreal for. A week and spent some time there researching this character and getting a feel for the city. So for me, I, I, I have to have this kind of sense that I can not just know the, the environment in, in which the characters are living, but I need to understand it. I need to feel it. So 
previous novel, I needed a, a secluded, out-of-the-way town for a character that wanted to kind of hide to live. And in the era in which the novel was set, Fernie was a, was a classic candidate. It turns out our, our daughter lives in Fernie and mm -hmm. teaches there, so I visited Fernie several times and got the feel of the town. So for me, I, 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 I don't have any reason right now to... Oh, and one of my novels had uh, a significant portion of it actually set in Saskatchewan, but again, I'd, my wife and I had spent some time in Saskatchewan, and I knew the town of East End very well. I knew every street, every rock, every river, you know, everything about it in, a, in the sense that I could feel it. So for me, it was very easy to write the characters living there, but for me... The reason I picked BC and mostly the College and Valley is, is because I live here, so I'm familiar with it, and I would it, it would take a lot of work. I could do it, but I could set a story in Nova Scotia, but I don't think I would do it as much as justice as well as somebody who lives there. I was just thinking of uh, looking at the map the other day as I was reading your book. Um, I don't think I've been to the College and Valley. I mean, I've been to Nanaimo. Uh, right. went through Qualicum uh, uh, Beach and, and, of course, Victoria and Sydney and all the sorts. So, so I've, I've missed that part. But, but that's the, 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 um, the great thing about your writing is that I feel like I, I um, am there at that moment. Right. And in all those things that, that one feels, I guess, when they're, they're um, in, in situations with other people that... Um, don't necessarily work out, or, or, or that they give one a lot of pause. What is it um, about your interest about people? Because in reading the stories in, in this collection, your observations about people seem to come from curiosity. Um, you said a moment ago that, that, that they're, they're inspired by some moments that you, you might have experienced as well, but I mean, it, they're not just past observations. Um, uh, surely, not all of these come from one's imagination. I mean, and if they did, um, there must have been some moments that you've observed. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, and I don't think uh, that's a unique char characteristic for me. I think all writers do that. I mean, when you, when you see somebody, whether they're drunk and staggering down a back alley or whether they're riding in a limousine with their head out or whether they're you know running down the beach naked what where whatever they're doing they're doing for a reason there's always a reason for something so when i see unique behavior or sometimes even rather routine behavior mm -hmm. i always ask myself you know how did that behavior come about so for me when i'm looking at a character i i believe like I try to capture that character, what they would, they are really like, because I, I believe I have met dozens of them like that. So what makes them like that? Why do they operate that way? Like when somebody gets angry, they're angry for a reason, and that reason might be the the essence of the story. You know what I mean? But mm -hmm. to me, to to just watch people, I I think everybody watches people, but a lot of people watch watch people and think, well, that's that's weird, yeah. or that's different. Yeah, yeah. I always think, why is that different? Why is that weird? And, and has this curiosity been something that, that you've always had? I mean, even before you were a writer, say? I, I think so. 
Yeah, I think so. I, um, yeah, I, I've always been drawn to. Well, I, I think what happens too is um, uh, uh, my my family. When I was five, my my parents split up, so I was in, ended up going with my mother uh, from Nelson to live on the coast here, Thetis Island, initially. Mm-hmm. And so, I think a lot of time of my time I spent on my own. And and so when you're on your own, and you don't have brothers or sisters to argue with, uh, which is another great fodder for stories for mm-hmm. sure mm-hmm. but when you're on your own you end up being an observer more in a more secular way than perhaps uh, uh, someone who's a member of 14 children you know sure, yeah. so when you when adults would talk like we would go we would go to somebody's house and they would be playing cards or drinking beer or whatever and you just you would sit back and what else are you going to do you know back in that those days most houses had three TV stations and two of them were fuzzy, so TV wasn't a big deal. Mm. You just sit and you watch and you listen and you observe and you start asking, you know, why are they laughing? Why are they mad? Why are they being critical of other people? And what, you know, what is the the thing that motivates them to to do what they do? You just can't help it, you know, because that's your, that's the basis of everything that you see in front of you, you know. And and I guess empathy... um, comes about because of that time that one spends alone. I mean, or do you think that that's the case? I mean, I, I can't see why those two aren't connected. Uh, they could They could be. I, I think, I don't, you know what, I really don't know what causes empathy. I, I do believe it's mostly how you're raised, and yet I don't think my, my mother for that, for, you know, to, to be honest, I don't think she was an overwhelmingly empathetic person. She didn't volunteer in the community or whatever. I just, I think when you when you grow up, you you, you look around and if you see pain and suffering, I, I suppose you could be living on your own and just dismiss it, or you could embrace the experience and wish that that person didn't have to be in that situation. I'm just, I'm not sure that isolation and empathy come hand in hand. I think a, an empathetic person could just as easily come from a milieu of oh, sure. 20 yeah. kids. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not sure about that. I, it's the same with uh, an interest in reading and writing. I think my, my mother, my mother read The Odd Knitting Book and The TV Guide. Yeah. And my Hungarian stepfather, who I was raised by, couldn't read English well enough to get his driver's license. So, you know, I wasn't raised in a house where, you know, sp- you know discussing Virginia Woolf was supper time discussion. Sure. You yeah, know, yeah. This didn't happen. So I, I don't, sometimes I don't know where, why people become empathetic, sensitive uh, readers, visual artists. I don't know, but I, I just, I, I don't know, but uh, it is fun to speculate about that for sure. I brought up empathy, Bill, because I, uh, as I was reading the book, there are some characters that I didn't care for, um, or that I wouldn't say glance at twice if I, I encountered them on the street. And right. yet, because of um, the way you portray them in, through your writing, I couldn't help but care in a, in a way. Right. And and so I would assume that the, that um, because of the way that you wrote them, the way you depicted them, um, right. th- these are people that that um, 
in one way or another you care about a little bit or a lot. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, even even what what appear to be the most despicable people on the face of the earth, mm-hmm. I believe, deserve our empathy. I mean, nobody, is, you know, is born and and comes out of the womb, and the first their thought they have is, I yearn to be a drug dealer. I yearn to be a drug addict. Nobody, nobody comes out of the womb thinking that. Something has contorted their life to make them live a life that most of us would seem like an unsatisfactory one. But, you know, to sit, to just see them there and just say, to write them off seems unfair to me. Um, they're, uh, they're a vic- we're all a victim of our environment and our circumstances, and, and some of us manage to put little things behind us, but some people have to deal with so many things, and some of them are pretty big, that it defeats them. But that's, it's just not their fault. They weren't born to be that person. The, um, I'm jumping around here, and I haven't really t- touched on specific stories because I, I feel that um, I, I'm worried that I would give something away when, when people should, should re- really listen, uh, pardon me, read the book because they'll be able to um, get the, the satisfaction of, of following these characters as, as, as um, one does when they read it. Um, the one story, though, it's the shortest story in the book, and, and I must admit that when I first picked up the book, it was the first one I read, um, because I, I had I only had a little bit of time, and I noticed that it was the shortest, and I thought I could I could finish it in time. Um, it, it involves a uh, a reader, yeah, and and I couldn't help but enjoy um, the fact that um, here was here was an enthusiastic reader, a young a young a young boy. Um, showing us, the reader of the story, the importance of reading. It, it, it evokes a lot of feelings that, that I think readers have about reading, um, surely they're the same ones that you had going back to when you were a kid. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and avid readers, it, it's certain it's interesting to watch avid readers. <clears throat> um, have, I've taught all the, all the grades. And when you teach grade one, every year that I did, mm-hmm. um, there would always be one, sometimes two kids. They'd come to school in grade one, and they already knew how to read. Yeah. And they were a pleasure to have, a challenge for the teacher in some ways, because everyone else is starting off much you know, further behind. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're also re- re- kind of um, revered in a way, but with a kind of scrutiny by the other kids because already they've separated themselves. And when you're, you know, when, you, when you're great around maybe 10 or 12, uh, anyone who's an avid reader, especially if you're a boy, um, that becomes a bit of a, 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 a almost like a, a screening device. You know, you're a different kind of commodity. And then when you get up into the high school grades, well, everybody understands completely that our school system is really tailored for academic students. Mm-hmm. The ones that are on top are revered, you know, in, inside people revere them. Even the students that are getting C- minus or barely hanging on, they, they wish they were there. Mm-hmm. But they're still given sometimes a rough time until maybe the end of the year and people find out they got a scholarship to McGill or something, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, to be to be <clears throat> outstanding in any field is always a problem in, in some
some way or other. Yeah, I always wondered that about people and why, why they resent, or, or not even resent, but it always is a source of um, problems for them. I mean, as I, I've gotten older, I, I um, in, in trying to be as generous a person as I possibly can, have, have tried to, I don't know, um, celebrate may not be the right word, but, you know, not resent, I guess, <laughs> yeah, other people's yeah. success, you know? Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I agree. Like, I... I love to hear people's good news stories. I will definitely sit down and listen to their sad stories. Yeah. And, and and sometimes the best thing to do is nothing other than listen to right. their sad yep. stories. You know, they're not usually looking for advice. They're looking just to get it out, just mm-hmm. spit it out. You know, get it all out of their system. Yeah. But when I hear somebody's success, and it doesn't matter what it is, I I guess I can't help getting excited because I. It's almost like reading a book, you know, like only it's being told to me. And I can imagine the feelings and the work that went into it and the, the exaltation that has resulted from, from all that they put into it. And I, I, I love to celebrate along with them, you know. And I think that's actually a very compelling desire for human beings. That's why when, when people watch sports, they'll sometimes have two or three teams that they follow because... Yeah. After all, they have to have one of them. It's got to be a winner, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's how sport is, is uh, I guess, structured. You know, at the end of the day, there's a winner and there's a loser. Yep, exactly. And we all want to be winners. And if we can't be winners, it, it's fun to at least associate with winners. I don't want to give anything away, uh, Bill, but um, for, I think, all of the stories in the book, perhaps except one, um, it ends at a point where... A character is, say, going somewhere or turning the page, reading another book, um, looking back or away. But, but they, they always seem to be looking ahead. Um, do, do you think there's a reason for that? I mean, is, is there something that that, um, that, that that might signal to you that, that that's the end of a story, perhaps? Or, or is, is that how you look at life? Well, that's a, well, it's an interesting point and, and a good question as well. I'm not... I'm not sure. I haven't thought about that. I just know that when I start writing, I never know how how long the story is going to be for me. But I know when it comes to an end. So it might be it might be three thousand words. It mm-hmm. might be five thousand. It might be eight thousand. It might be twenty thousand. It might be two hundred thousand. But when I, when the, I, I stop, when I feel like the story has been told, and so when the story has been told, when you think about it. You could take any novel that you have read and enjoyed, and that novel could continue. It absolutely could continue. Um, even if the person dies, their yeah. children could carry on. Like, exactly. So mm-hmm. when we're, we're telling a story, there's this, it's this huge landscape of experiences, and we're, ch- we're pulling a chunk out of it. It's like when somebody tells you a story about something that happened downtown today or mm-hmm. whatever and you're listening to it, they tell you the story. It may take a minute, it may take 45 seconds, but when they're finished, they stop because they believe they've told the story. They don't, they don't need to go on and on or investigate why this person did that. The actual story that is of interest to the person has already been told, so therefore it's time to stop. And so for me, when a story feels like it's over, 
it's, uh, that's where it stops. It, could it continue? Absolutely it could continue. You could take any one of those stories and I could make them four times as long. But the actual story, the essence of the story that's trying to be told for me has been told, and that's why I stopped. Yeah, m m most of the stories end at a moment where um, uh, optimistic's not the right word, but, but it, it's, a, it's a, a, a glad note, if, if you will. Um, and, and, you know, as, as, as life is, it, it could go sideways, it could go, it could go bad pretty quickly. But as a reader, I was always, regardless of what happened uh, up to that point, um, I always thought that, that something better was ha was about to happen. Right, right. Well, it's interesting you say that because this, my my sister's friend read read the book and told my sister that she enjoyed all the stories very much. And mm -hmm. when she but she, when she read the novella, she she said the only thing about the novella she told my sister that was meant to be related to me. The only thing about the novella was when it ended, it was sad. And I thought, well, uh, yeah. I mean, it just, you wouldn't read you wouldn't read that novella necessarily if you were wanting to create an atmosphere of a birthday party. I mean, some things in life are sad, mm -hmm. and and I, uh, you know, I don't try to make every story. Uh, rosy or a happy ending. I, I actually don't like that. It feels like you're contriving or you're manipulating <laughs> right, the reader. Yeah, yeah. You know, if somebody falls off a cliff and splits their head open uh, in in real life, that's sad. Yeah. I mean, you can't you can't just say, well, the crows enjoyed watching him fall, therefore it was a good a, a good event. I mean, it's just sad. That's it. So some things in life. Have uh, you know a rosy lining, and other things are just just not that way. I and mean, you have to, you know, to me, that's just part of life. So some stories are going to end with the potential for hope. I mean, if you look at if you look at Shakespeare's um, comedies and tragedies, for example, his his comedies always end on a on a rosy note, but with a warning that things could get worse. Yeah. And his tragedies always end with, with some catastrophic event, but with the notion that things could get better. And so I, I think that's just the way life is. It's like a, a wave. It goes up and down and up and down. And so the story you've chosen to tell, if it ends at the bottom of the wave, it's going to be sad. And if it ends closer to the top, then it may seem like an optimistic story, but it's got nothing to do with trying, for me, for trying to create a rosy ending or a, a disastrously sad ending, it's just where the story stops because the story has been, is finished. Yeah. Uh, Bill, this is, is this the second book that you've published with, with Mona and uh, Mother Tongue Yeah, Publishing? it is, and she deserves a lot of credit because she, it was really her idea. She emailed me one day, she said, so what are you writing now? And I said, well, I told her, and she said, well, send me the novella, and she read it, and she liked it, she said, let's put together... Since it's set in the Couch and Valley, let's put together a bunch of stories that are set in the Couch and Valley. So I sent her about eight or ten, and she picked uh, four to go with the novella. And uh, the whole thing was her conception, really. So she deserves all the credit. It, it just seems like it. it um, even the story, it, the stories are unrelated, other than say being set in sort of the similar place or yeah. the same place. It, it, it comes together so well. Um, did, did you have a say in how they were ordered in the book? Uh, well, I, I guess I did. She, 
she would send me uh, an idea. Okay, it could be this way, this way, this way. I said, sure, go for it. Then a week later, she said, well, actually, I think you should go this way, this way, this way. Uh, okay, I said, fine, no problem. And then she wrote back. She said, well, Jack Hodgins read your manuscripts, and he thinks this should end here, uh, should end with this story. I said, sure, no problem. See, for me, it doesn't really matter. I, I, I understand sometimes the sequence of events if, if the stories are close, more closely related uh -huh. is important. But for me, I, I like the notion that Alice Munro once said, she said, I can pick up any book out of the library, just open it any place and read two or three pages and know if I'm going to like it. So to me, it, it is less the, the sequence of the stories. It wasn't uh, something I was going to stress out about, but but Mona had some strong opinions on it, and she, uh, I think, ended up with a, a, a very reasonable order of the stories, let's put it that way. Yeah, when I went back, it made sense, but as I said, I didn't read it in order. Right. Um, I picked it up, you know, the shortest story, and then, and then, I, then I went back to the beginning, and then I was really curious about half-brothers, and so I, 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 in the middle of one story, went to that, and... Um, yeah, it, 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 it really is. It's, it's a very strong collection. Bill, I could talk all afternoon with you um, yeah. and, and uh, have enjoyed uh, this chat and our previous chat when you were, you were uh, first on. Um, I, I so appreciate your time. You sent me an email, a very kind email after our last uh, conversation that I, I found on my computer because I was looking for your email address to send you a, uh, an invitation to appear now. And, I, and it was a, a very kind email. Um, and if I didn't reply, I want to thank you for that. Oh, well, no problem. I appreciate uh, all that you do to support uh, writers and thinkers. I know you don't just do literary works. You do uh, you do all kinds of, of interviews with people because you're trying to get ideas out there, and it's, uh, it's an important role, and uh, we appreciate it. Well, thank you for your time today, and, and continue good luck with this book. All right. Well, thank you very much. Have a great day. The website for more is at BillStenson.com. The book is called Half Brothers and Other Stories. It's from Mother Tongue Publishing. Bill Stenson joined me on the line from his home in the Cowichan Valley. In Vancouver, I'm Joseph Plunder.